1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. But first, let's start with the deadline. The clock ticking here now for small businesses to repay loans from the COVID pandemic. Remember when the government gave out those loans to small businesses, get them through the pandemic. Well, now it's payback time, and a lot of small businesses struggling here, especially in this economy, and a lot of them seeking a, a an extension on the repayment deadline. Got Dan Kelly standing by to discuss First, have a listen to a small business owner here. This is Cliff Lear. He owns a small bakery in Victoria saying, look, paying back these loans, this is tough right now. Coming out of COVID,
2: we got a lot more debt, picked up a lot of debt through COVID, which we had to take to kind of get through it. And now it's time to pay it back. Business has always been slim margins. It's a tough business to be in. And now it's really sad dividends to uh, anybody in this business can, can tell you now it's pretty tough.
1: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Kelly. Dan is the president and CEO, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and they do a great job representing small business in Canada. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good to be with you. Okay, Dan, let's break this down right now. Like, how many businesses in Canada received these loans, especially small businesses?
3: Yeah, look, the SIBA program, the Canada Emergency Business Account, was one of the very first programs Ottawa created to help small businesses survive the pandemic restrictions. Uh, in total, 900,000 businesses, that's a huge swath of the small business population, took out a loan. Uh, originally, it was $40,000 loan, then it became a $60,000 loan as COVID went on. The most important feature for small business owners is that you had some time interest-free before you had to pay back, and secondly, If you paid back the majority of the loan before now, December 31st of 2023, a couple months from now, you got to keep 20,000. So you could keep a full third of the loan. You pay back 40. You get to keep six. uh, Sorry, you get to keep 20. uh, And that is significant relief from businesses that had to take on, as your as your uh, clip showed, just a mountain of debt just to keep the lights on over the covid period.
1: Okay, so December 31st is the new the new deadline. They've already extended that already once, didn't they? Yeah, it
3: was originally December 31st, 2022. Okay. Uh, they announced as COVID, you know, re- remember originally it was two weeks to flatten the curve, then two months to flatten the curve. That quickly became <clears throat> two years of on and off restrictions. Uh, so it was extended a year. The government just a week and a half ago, though, did announce what sounded like another year Uh, extension. Sadly, though, uh, the fine print shows that the extension was not to the deadline that I'm talking about. uh, But in fact, the ultimate deadline, if you miss out on the forgivable chunk, you had till the end of 2025 to pay back the full 60,000. That date has now been kicked back to 2026. But the most important part, the deadline that everybody's focused on was the December 31st uh, deadline of this year to pay back to keep the forgivable chunk? Right. The government did low did move that back, but if you can believe it, they moved it back by 18 days. So now mm. you have till January the 18th of 2024 to somehow find $40,000 if you want to if you want to kill your loan and and get it off your books. And and that's the part that most business owners are saying they just don't have.
1: Mm. Okay, nine hundred thousand businesses got these loans, as you described, Dan. How many businesses have actually paid these loans back at this point? only about only about twenty percent
3: of businesses have paid it back. Okay. Now yeah. there are some more that 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 have the money or will find the money to do it before before January eighteenth. Um, but the group that I'm really worried about are business owners that that don't have the cash to pay back a forty thousand dollars loan by January eighteenth. They are at risk of of seeing their debt go up by 50% on January the 19th, um, and 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 that's the majority of businesses that just at this point have not recovered to 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 enable them to repay the $40,000 that they currently owe.
1: What are you hearing from the small businesses that you represent with this situation and the struggles that they're facing? This is a difficult economy. We've got inflation is still a problem. Interest rates soaring really tough now to run a small business, especially one on tight margins. What are you hearing from them as they struggle to repay these loans?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Look, the, if we take a step back and, and look at what's happening in small business across Canada, op, optimism, le, optimism levels are down. Uh, only half of small businesses, half are at pre pandemic levels of sales. So, hmm. you know, one in two small businesses have not even got their sales back to 2019 levels. Uh Costs, like us as Canadians, small business owners are dealing with huge cost increases on every line of their budget. And then on top of that, just to survive, the average small business had to take out over a 100 grand in debt to survive COVID. Some of that is in the SIBO loan, but some of that is just debt that they've taken on outside of that. And it's that debt that's dragging them under. So we're, we're urging Ottawa to be a bit more patient. Uh, allow small businesses uh, uh at least another year to repay that seba loan while protecting that forgivable component so we have a petition on cfib's website cfib.ca that is urging parliamentarians uh to 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 build in a full extra year for small businesses to repay their seba okay. loans uh, and that we believe will help a ton of them
1: What would you say, Dan, to taxpayers who are listening to this show who are struggling as well in this difficult economy who would think that listening to this saying, you know, no one's telling me to uh, write off $20,000 in debt and don't worry about paying it back. No one's putting a a cap on my, my cost pressures for groceries and gasoline and rent and everything else that's gone up. Why should these businesses get a break? What do you say to that?
3: Yeah, look, there's there's no question, and there's some business owners who have already paid CBA loans that figure, well, well wait a minute, I was able to do that, so shouldn't uh, shouldn't everyone? I I totally get and sympathize with that perspective. Businesses do not did not want to take uh, loans in order to get through COVID. You have to remember that businesses were shut down for month after month, unable to earn an income from the marketplace. Uh, due to COVID restrictions. BC had slightly lighter restrictions than many parts of the country, but still businesses took it in the teeth uh, for for many, many months. The other piece that I would say is um, we need to figure out what's going to get Ottawa back the, 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 money, the most money from these loans. It, it serves us as taxpayers no good if we insist that businesses that don't have the money uh, pay it back and then the business ends up defaulting on the entire $40,000 that it owes Ottawa at this moment. If that happens, it is taxpayers that already have agreed to pick up the tab. There were $50 billion of these SIBA loans extended to small businesses, backstopped by the Government of Canada. So if we push too hard, Ottawa and us as taxpayers will get less back from the loans that have already been extended, Uh, We have a better chance of getting our money back if, in fact, uh, we're a bit more patient and allow businesses more time to repay this loan, more time for their businesses to recover.
1: All right. Dan, we're following it closely. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Anytime at all. All right. Let's talk about the wealth gap in Canada now, the gap between rich and poor. Critics say that gap has become a chasm You know the old saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? Now, his new report out now says Metro Vancouver has some of the widest income gaps between rich and poor in the whole country. West Vancouver, particularly high on this list. I've got Katrina Miller standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. Now, this is obviously not a new phenomenon wealth has been concentrated in the hands and bank accounts of the mega rich forever but is it getting worse here now have a listen to this Here, here's journalist paula baker breaking down the global wealth gap have a listen
4: all the money in the world is growing ever more concentrated in the hands of just a few people It's actually just 62 ultra-rich individuals, a list that is primarily made up of men and includes the likes of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, the Koch brothers, and the Walmart heirs. Now, they have as much wealth as the bottom half of humanity. Five years ago, it took 388 rich men to achieve that status. Now, how rich are the world's richest people? The wealthiest 62 people on earth now own as much as half the world's population, about 3.5 billion people.
1: All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Katrina Miller. Katrina is the Executive Director, Canadians for Tax Fairness. Katrina, thank you for coming on today.
5: Well, Thank you for having me, Mike.
1: Okay, I appreciate it a lot. And when you hear some of these numbers, the way they're broke down about the wealth gap, it is kind of shocking when you see like the uber wealthy, like the super duper rich, and how much they have compared to everybody else. But let's talk a little bit about some of these recent findings in Canada on income distribution, the wealth gap. What jumps out at you here?
5: Well, I think what jumps out at me is that the the sort of yawning gap between Canada's average numbers on inequality and what we're seeing in these, you know, smaller communities and neighborhood breakdowns. You know, um, the the report that you're referring to talks about something called the Gini index, which is basically a a way that um, economists measure uh, an income gap or wealth gap um, and basically the closer you come to one on the Gini index the worse off you are one represents someone one person holding all of the wealth or income versus everyone else and zero is Perfect equality. Um, right. And you're finding communities like West Vancouver show up with a 0. 0.5, where Canada sits at about a 0. 0.3. And so we're seeing that we're getting this concentrated inequality, particularly in urban communities where people want to live and where people yeah. have access to jobs and transit and schools and all that sort of stuff, but are finding it harder and harder to live because they're being priced out of those communities.
1: Right. And we take a look at this list that has just come out. West Vancouver, you touched on there, number two on this list. So the second, I guess you could describe it as the second worst in the whole country for the income gap. The city of Vancouver itself ranks 11th place on this list. And there are several, there are a few other metro communities on the list as well, and some other cities in in British Columbia too. Like, would you say that? in metro vancouver or british columbia typically is has got more uh, a bigger wealth gap than some parts of the other the rest of the country or is this this uh consistent across the whole country
5: no, I think it's absolutely mm. true that Vancouver, the city of Vancouver and the particular neighborhoods or uh, you know smaller uh, localities in Vancouver, like Metro Vancouver and West Vancouver, are definitely showing a wider gap in income than other parts of the country. Vancouver, if you look at the large cities, sits at third um, in the large city scale in terms of income inequality. And this mm. is really concerning. Um, when we look at this because you know this is where people live. We can look at national rates all we want, but we need to look at what people's experiences are and where they live and whether or not they can afford where they live. Um, and ultimately what happens and what's happening in these cases um, oftentimes is that these uh, income gaps are being somewhat driven by the fact that our property prices are increasing and property is considered a commodity that largely the wealthy um, gain access to and benefit from, while the rest of us end up with unaffordable homes.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not surprised to hear that, especially in Vancouver. We got the most expensive real estate in the country. So if you're sitting on a home and you bought your home years ago, obviously you're sitting on a pile of equity there. So let me ask you, Katrina, you're with Canadians, Canadians for Tax Fairness. What do you want to see happen here? Tax the rich, right?
5: <laughs> In broad yeah. terms, yes, tax the rich. Yeah. But let's stick with property there for a second. Okay. Um, if you own a lot of property and you sell that property right now and you get a big gain on that property, you only pay tax for half of that. Now, no person who's a wage earner gains that kind of tax break for their mm-hmm. wages. So ultimately, our tax system is set up right now to, uh, to reward the concentration of wealth. Um, And to provide tax breaks for it, while those of us who don't have access to that end up paying full freight. And that's not fair. And it's not right. And what it's going to do, and what it has done, is increased inequality, especially over the last 30 years in Canada. So
1: So you're saying there should be, what, a home equity tax?
5: Yeah, there should, well, it's called a capital gains tax, and yeah. right now Canada has a big capital gains break. And frankly, if you're a you know billionaire who owns lots and lots of property and assets and real estate, and you're selling and buying all the time, you should get taxed fully for the gains that you make on that. That's, what if it, What if it's, that it's makes your pr- sense to everybody?
1: What if it's your principal residence? Like right now, if you sell your principal residence, right there, there's no there's no tax, correct?
5: indeed there is no yeah. tax and i think that there's good discussion to be had about um how how that stays to ensure that those people who have had a mortgage and been painted off and you know have been using that home as basically their ability to retire um uh-huh. you know deserve to continue to maybe have some of that break what we're really focused on are the people who have multiple properties and who are using that as a way to gain wealth big okay. wealth, the kind of wealth that most of us can't access
1: Okay, so what do you say to the argument, Katrina, I know you, pr- you hear this all the time, right, that if you just bring in a big honking tax on the rich, if you tax the rich, well, guess what's going to happen? The rich are just going to pack their bags and, and move somewhere else where they don't have to pay as much tax. And that's going to be a, a net negative for the whole country if we have business owners that are packing up and leaving here that are jo- who are job creators. What do you say to that argument?
5: Well, there's two things to say. Frankly, our, the research shows that that's largely not true. People live in Canada because Canada is a great society to live in. Um, you have access to lots of things when you live in Canada that you don't have access to other places. So people live here more than just for more than just the tax breaks. The wealthy aren't going to leave because they have to pay a little bit more. And frankly, right now, the wealthy aren't generating a lot of benefit to the rest of us in our economies because they're holding the wealth. They're not sharing it at all. What a tax system does when it operates properly is it helps redistribute some of that wealth so that we can all benefit and ultimately make it a better society for everyone to live in. Including-
1: Okay, so, so don't we already have though very high marginal tax rates on the wealthy in Canada? Like where do, where does Canada rank among other countries for tax rates for the highest income earners? I thought we had very high taxes here already
5: bad. we're you know we're we're about average when you look at OECD um, tax rates yeah. um, but what we have are a lot of ways to get out of paying taxes so while our you know the tax rates that are on the book look pretty good the tax rates that people especially corporations actually pay are really quite low and we have to get rid of all the tax loopholes in order to make our system actually as progressive as it's supposed to be, as fair as it's supposed to be. But those tax breaks, all the tax havens, the loopholes where people get to you know, uh, basically discount things like half their capital gains or some of their mm. dividends that they receive from their, from their um, corporate holdings, that needs to end in order to make the tax system actually fair. We don't necessarily need to raise the rates, although I think there's an argument too. We need to end the loopholes.
1: Okay. Well, some of those are deliberately built into the system though as incentives, right? Like for example, in British Columbia for the liquefied natural gas sector, LNG, the government brought in some very lucrative tax breaks and incentives for private investors to come in here and spend billions of dollars to set up LNG facilities. And Mm -hmm. the argument is, okay, the government takes a bit of a A bath on the tax revenue they would otherwise collect, but look at all the jobs they're creating. You're not, do you not, you don't buy that argument?
5: Well, yeah, I buy it in principle. It would be great if we actually had some statistics to show us that it works. Ultimately, what we see in the tax breaks that Canada has provided in the past is that there's not very many conditions around them in terms of actual employment that needs to be created with that tax break. And there's very, very little follow up enforcement if those conditions actually are part of the original deal. So we're missing the conditions, we're missing the enforcement, and in the end, what ends up happening is Canada pays out a lot of money and doesn't get much in return to show for it.
1: Okay, we're following it closely. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today.
5: My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me.
2: Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation.
1: housing pressures here in British Columbia, especially in Metro Vancouver, we've got the housing shortage. We've got the most expensive housing in the whole country. And I'm not just talking about buying a place. I mean, that is off the table now for so many people, completely unaffordable. Even finding a decent affordable rental is becoming very difficult in Metro Vancouver, too. We need more housing. Everyone can agree on that doesn't matter which political party you're from they're all saying this that same thing on that point we need more lots more housing here's the question i got a great panel standing by to discuss this now who should build the housing should it be the private sector should it be government should government be making massive investments in subsidized below market rate housing Okay, have a listen to Pierre Polyev here, the federal conservative leader, on the show last week. We talked about this point. He basically wants the bureaucrats and government to get out of the way, let private sector build more housing. Here's what he had to say to me. It's a simple matter of supply and demand. Uh, Why is it so so dirt cheap to buy a home in big American cities? Dirt cheap.
2: Like, Uh it's not cheap. It's dirt cheap. Um, Even in big, prosperous cities with really high incomes, because they allow people to build homes. It's really that simple.
1: Yeah, okay. So he says governments get out of the way south of the border and let developers build housing, and that's the answer. Now listen to BC Premier David Eby here. He is in Ottawa right now looking for money from Trudeau to build more housing. He's he's there today. Have a listen to what he said after he went to to Singapore, okay? So he did a, a trip to Singapore. He looked at the housing there he says he was super impressed by singapore tons of government built housing here's what he had to say
2: they started in the 70s and now 80% of people live in housing that's been developed by government in some way uh, 90% of people are homeowners uh, who are singaporean hmm. citizens and so it is totally if it's possible in singapore yeah when people they look at british columbia they go are you kidding me you're not able to figure out housing
1: okay uh, so he says, like, 70% of people in Singapore are living in government-built housing. He seems to like that idea. Let's discuss it now with my guest. we got a great panel for you, Margareta Dovegal. Very pleased to welcome Margareta back. Margareta is a Vancouver housing advocate. Margareta, thanks for coming on.
7: Great to be here again. Thanks, Mike.
1: Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Peter Waldkirch. Peter is the director of Abundant Housing Vancouver. Peter, thank you for coming on.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. Always
1: appreciate it. Okay, really excellent panel. Margareta, let me go to you first. Who should build all this new housing? Should it be government? Should it be private sector? Should it be both? Your thoughts?
4: Definitely both. Uh, We have so much demand, so much unmet demand for housing across the country, but particularly in places like Vancouver, that uh, at this point, it doesn't make any sense to say we will only let one uh, but I mean, the reality is we haven't been letting either public or private sector uh, really take a strong leadership role on this. Uh, governments have been spending money, but not nearly enough. the The scale has just not kept up with uh, the growth in population and all the demand we have for housing. Uh, and we certainly haven't been letting the private sector build. So many cities, like Vancouver, have made it incredibly difficult for uh, developers to build, even when there is a clear business case for it. So uh, we see some. Things changing right now. The federal government recently uh, said that they would waive the GST on yeah. purpose-built rentals. Um, yeah. So that's you know a sign of progress. But I think it's only a first step. We need more of both, and we need it urgently. So at least in the next couple of years, we can see some of these intense, intense pressures start to relieve before we lose even more people to the housing crisis.
1: How do crisis. we? How do we know? And Peter, I'll go to you first on this. Like if you if you do what Paulyev says, there, just get government out of the way. Let private sector do its thing would that just create more unaffordable housing? Like, how would that be affordable? Well,
2: I'd say we we absolutely do need both. You know, I think it's an error to let one or the other be an excuse to sort of block the other, because the reality is the sort of government policies that will help uh, social housing, public housing, subsidized housing get built is also the sort of the policies that will help private sector housing. You know, either way, the scale of the housing shortage is, is really major. And I don't think anybody at any level of government yet has really fully grasped the scale of the issue that we, we, are, we are changing. So we really do all hands on deck. We certainly need a lot more private housing because the reality is it will always be a part of our housing system. Most people in Canada, including working people and families, live in privately built housing. And
1: that's very likely going to continue to be, to be the case sure. going into the, uh, into you- the future. But do you think, though, Peter, that there needs to be a massive injection of government spending on housing, subsidized below market rate housing? Like that quote we played from EB, that really jumped out at me there where he was talking about in Singapore, 70% of the people live there in government built housing. And he seemed he seemed very enthusiastic and happy about that. Like, do you think there should be a massive, massive injection of public funds into housing? I I think we do. I, th- I think
2: that sort of goal is that would be, you know, many decades out in the making. We certainly need to increase our spending on social housing because the reality is after decades of underbuilding housing, we're in a situation where there are many people who are in really precarious housing situations and they need help now. So we certainly do need that. And his government has taken steps towards that. But it's important to put it in context too. you know, even his government, they're talking about $4 billion, you know, significant amounts of money, but it's really a drop in the bucket of the sort of investment we need overall in housing. So when you look at what they're actually, doing. I think the government fully recognizes that uh, that uh, the private sector is going to continue to have a very important role in relieving our housing shortage.
1: OK, should the should the private sector lead the way on this, Margaretta, uh, You know, you're both saying that we need we need we need it all right. We need everything, all hands on deck, private sector, public sector. But should private sector housing really be massively increased? Like, do you agree with Polly here? Just get these bureaucrats out of the way.
4: I I think that's a reasonable approach, uh, given that uh, there has been so many calls. There have been so many calls from the private sector. We're ready to build, uh, even as business conditions have tightened a little bit because of interest rates going up. They're still saying we're ready to get there, get shovels in the ground. Uh, We're ready to find the labor force to to build all these homes uh, and the supplies and the economics make sense, um, but they haven't been allowed. Uh, You're looking in the city of Vancouver uh, for a seven to nine year window to actually get something built for when you start to plan it out. Uh, Let's say you already have land purchased, you're ready to go, you need to go through rezoning. It's a very arduous, lengthy process that adds a lot of cost. And uh, my thought isn't just that if we reduce some of the complexity and the timelines involved in that, that we'll get those who already are ready to build building, but we will also have the benefit of lowering the barriers to getting more different types of housing from the private sector built. Uh, right now, uh, it's a lot easier for a massive, massive developer uh, to put that capital on the risk for almost a decade's time. My hope is that if we can fix the system, make it more functional, greater uh, outcome certainty, less delay, uh, less you know holdups, uh, we will actually be able to get even more uh, developers in that overall uh, landscape. So I think I think we need all of these solutions. Uh, Polyev uh certainly has pointed to some real structural issues that have led to the issues that we're having, but the solution won't come from one or the other. Uh, the public sector definitely needs to have a role. There's going to be types yeah. of housing that need to be subsidized that the government has a role in providing. Uh, but as Pete said, it's going to take a while uh, if we really want to go the Singapore route before that's even feasible, not to mention well, very yeah. expensive and very risky.
1: For sure. And Peter, real quickly here, and then we'll fit into break, take some phone calls on this. Like when you listen to Polyev here, who is really walking around beating a bass drum on this one all the time about housing, that he wants to unleash the power of the private sector to get all this housing built. Do you think, like I've heard people say like, oh, Polyev just wants his his rich developer buddies to cash in here by removing all the red tape and the gatekeepers, as he calls them, so his developers can get rich. Do you think that's? Do you think there's a, an element of truth there?
2: Uh, I think there's an element of truth. The fact that we have this huge housing shortage, and somebody has got to build it. Personally, if somebody's going to make money. I don't see a big problem with that. Right now, this is the status quo is that the people who already have housing, who are sitting on land, they're the ones who are making all the money. And that's what got us into this whole mess. So I, I don't, I don't, that's not really the concern I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is translating rhetoric into action. Because when you look at yeah. the Conservatives' uh, actual plan that they're proposing, it's pretty late on details. And what's proposing isn't very good, actually. So, for example, Margareta mentioned the GST waiver, which was a recent step, which was quite positive. The, the conservative plan would eliminate that instead get the GST waiver, you'd have to go through more red tape to qualify for it. So oh. I don't think their action is quite actually matching their rhetoric yet. I hope that they keep on uh, evolving and developing real housing policies.
1: All right, your calls to our housing panel now. Alice and Langley. Hi, Alice, go ahead.
2: Yeah, my husband
6: is a builder. Um, he quit building new houses because it takes one to two years to get your permit out of city hall and about $80,000 before you even put one nail in a two by four.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is so, that in Lang- Is that in Langley? He's experienced that?
6: Uh, no more towards Vancouver. He, but, yeah. um, it, it's just ridiculous.
1: Yeah. You hear and, this all the time. Yeah, Allison, thank you. Thank you for the call, Margareta. I and mean, we hear this all the time, right? The red tape, the cost, the delays, your thoughts.
7: Yeah, no, just uh, scale that 80k for a single family home up to a uh, 200, 300, 400, 500 unit development and you're looking at millions and millions uh that have to be sunk in. Uh so yeah, it makes it hard for smaller developers to certainly get in there. Uh the ones that we do have that are, have those capital reserves, they have the ability to borrow huge amounts of money. They go and they do that, but they're budgeting around that uncertainty, that time delay. And you know, you were talking about the US earlier. Uh if you talk to an average american living in a big city today they're complaining about uh costs of housing going up uh but relative to canada it's a walk in the park so uh you know they they seem to have a a slightly better approach in terms of getting things built quicker uh we have a lot to learn from that but there's uh, a lot more that housing that's needed and uh, a lot of uh, structural issues like the delays and permits that uh, we need to fix if we want to get to a little bit of a better position
1: back to the phone calls dev in vancouver hi dev go ahead
6: It it, it all boils down, uh, my my friends, to to supply and demand. And and, and that's never going to change. And, you know, the irony is we're asking the very levels of government that screwed it up and those officials, oh, you built the leaky condos, for example. Now come back and fix the the, the mistakes you made. Look, it is supply and demand. And it's always going to be supply and demand. And if I can quickly say, so EB likes a Singapore example. Well, in Singapore, they have canings. For, for little offenses. They don't allow you to spit. There's, 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 there's no homeless problem. So Premier Eby, if you like Singapore so much, can we copy some more ideas from them as well?
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure he's not talking about copying those ideas. He does seem to like his pub, the public housing that's gone on there. Peter Waldkirch, your thoughts.
2: Well, there definitely is a real element of supply and demand that is going on, right? Uh, the housing system comes down to kind of a case uh, of musical chairs, and if there's not enough chairs, people are gonna end up suffering. And so we need to fix that. That's sort of the core problem. We can't fix anything else so long as that, uh, that is the case. And I'll just add quickly, going back to your question about you know developers making money, the caller called me just before this, that's exact example of the sort of people I think all of us do want to be successful and to be thriving. The small builders who are building our homes, if we can get that industry away from moving cashed houses towards building, for example, low-rise apartments. That would be a wonderful mm. thing for society and for our economy and for our
1: neighbors who are working in these good, high-paying, quality jobs. Okay, Natalie in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Natalie, go ahead.
6: Hi, yeah, my neighbor is moving back to England. And why? Because she's 58, and there, there's public housing available for seniors. So oh. it's just... To me, it's just to give them public housing, you know, um, we need it. And it just, you know, and it allows discretionary income to be freed up, to go back into the economy, which is, it's really difficult. It's why small businesses can't survive right now. So to me, it's just, you know, not quite 70% probably, but um, because many people like to own their own home, but we need right. to definitely ramp up public housing.
1: Thank you, Natalie, for the call. I'll squeeze another one in here. Steve calling from Summerland. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for having me on.
6: Your previous caller was exactly
1: right in regards
6: to supply and demand. And, of course, the big challenge now is the land is so expensive. Uh, but, you know, and this has been talked about before, you know, the, the Vancouver Special that was built 40, 50 years ago, not the prettiest, but easy to approve. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that that's, but we've got to get, start getting permits through. And the other thing is the way the government can invest in this is by giving tax credits. Now, I know the MIRB thing had all kinds of issues with it, but the whole premise and the idea was great. Affluent or better than average income Canadians could invest in housing and and get a tax credit or a return on their money.
1: Okay. Steve, thank you for the call. Guys, we just got one minute left, so I'll give you both 30 seconds each here to sum up. Margareta, go ahead.
4: Yeah, there's a range of solutions. Uh, you know, uh, tax credits are certainly one to be looking at, but uh, the federal government recently announced that they'll be doing a lot more low-cost financing for construction of uh, rental housing. I think that's yeah. a step in the right direction. As Pete said, it's uh, enough talk. It's time for action. I'm excited that yeah. there's been some announcements lately from the feds on this, but it's time to really crank the action up, and it's time for voters to tell the federal government and the province, we need to see action. Enough talking about the crisis. Let's actually get to work right. and fix it. So
1: we see some results. Got- Peter, you got 30 seconds, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely agree. This
2: is an all-hands-on-deck sort of crisis, and it is a crisis. It is affecting our economy, our social lives, our culture, our arts, everything. Every aspect of life is being harmed by this housing crisis. So we need to to embrace change, that cities need to be cities. We also need to, uh, I think, move on from the people who only ever have to say no. Here we are talking about these big uh, reforms, but the reality is that even modest changes get huge opposition from local NIMBYs. So we need to get over that and really move forward as a society.
1: All right, here we go now with this Nazi nightmare in Ottawa. This is incredible here. Why was a 98-year-old Nazi war veteran introduced in the House of Commons where he received a standing ovation from MPs, Yaroslav Hunka? He was a member of a Nazi Waffen-SS unit in Ukraine. Joined up in 1943 fighting the Russians in the Second World War. And he was introduced in the House of Commons by Speaker Anthony Rota, who has still not resigned, but I anticipate, I think he's going to resign by the end of the day here. Let's listen. I got Terry Glavin standing by to discuss. Have a listen to the speaker here apologizing yesterday.
6: I've subsequently become aware of more information, which causes me to regret my decision to recognize this individual. I wish to apologize to the House, and I'm deeply sorry.
1: Okay, listen to the government house leader. This is Liberal MP Karina Gould. Listen how she dumps it all on, uh, on the speaker's lap here. Have a listen.
4: All of us here did that in the chamber on Friday because we trusted you on that. I think this unfortunate situation has been deeply embarrassing.
1: Yeah, you think? Yeah, deeply embarrassing is putting it lightly. Let's discuss it now with my guest Terry Glavin, the very fine columnist at the Ottawa Citizen. He's been following this Gong Show here. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks, Mike. <laughs> I appreciate it, Terry. Your your I'm thoughts, sorry. your thoughts on this man? What wh- who well, dealt this mess? What do you think? You know, when you when you when you when we talked yesterday, I said, you know.
6: All you need to do is, you know, play the theme music for, you know, Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. This is like a, or, you know, this is like a script out of Seinfeld. Yeah. I mean, it's the eve of Yom Kippur, for God's sake. And no less a figure than Vladimir <laughs> Stelensky. Yeah. The president of Ukraine is in person in the House of Commons. A Jew, by the way. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know. Rhoda, you know, it's all very lovely, and he's warmly received, and, you know, yes, we're going to support uh, Ukraine and its struggle with the, the Russian invaders. And then um, Anthony Rhoda gets up, and he says, I'd like to introduce a, you know, gallant Ukrainian patriot. What yes, a back hero. In the good old day. Yeah, I called I'm him a sorry. hero. I know I'm supposed to take this seriously, right? Yeah. But I might, I'm. I mean. I mean, look, it's all about optics. Let's be fair. You know, I mean I don't even I mean the poor I, I almost have sympathy for the old guy, and I do actually and his family to be dragged into this. Um, you know, they didn't pick this fight. The Ukraine no Ukrainian organization was consulted about this. It's just the optics. And I think I think this is what's happening, is that people it's just becoming impossible to ignore mm. that Everything is broken. That Canada, you know, like Trudeau, everybody was so excited about him. He was on the front page of Rolling Stone magazine. Oh, is he the great savior of global democracy? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just, the thing about, I think, to understand about Trudeau, I'm sure of it now, mm-hmm. is he just lacks the gene for embarrassment. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I mean, you think this uh, hunk of guys bad. You know, before before Trudeau was even elected in 2015, I, I I came upon a story that gave me reason to book. Because I had no, oh, actually, it's kind of okay. You know, Harper's had his time, and yeah, maybe the liberals will do a better job. This Trudeau guy, you never know. Um, and all my Syrian comrades uh, started to call me and say, what the hell is going on? The liberals were running, in fact, had green-lighted a candidate in Nepean. Who was the head of the Syrian Social Nationalist Party in Canada? <laughs> now, there, yeah, this MP, is part of the Assad's the... ruling coalition. They have their own stylized swastika, their own spiffy uniforms, an anthem sung to the tune of Deutschland, Deutschland, Über alles. And this was their, you know, favorite let... candidate. You had Sheila Kopf Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's let me ju- let me ju- let me jump in
1: after another. Let me jump in there, Terry, and just inform you and inform the listeners here that the Speaker has just resigned, so Anthony Rota has stepped down over this, I think is widely expected, especially when the Liberals started turning against him as well. Now have a listen to the NDP House leader here. This is Peter Julian calling on the Speaker to resign, which he just did. Let's listen.
0: I believe a sacred trust has been broken. It's for that reason, for the good of the institution of the House of Commons, that I say, sadly, I don't believe you can continue in this role. Regrettably, I must respectfully ask that you step
6: aside.
1: Okay. And the Speaker of the House of Commons has done just that. He just resigned. Terry, your thoughts?
6: Well, of course you were. I mean, we, we all knew this was going to have to happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I, I, I have to say, I'm not particularly impressed by these sober. Oh my goodness, you know uh comment commentaries from the from, from the from Julian right there and from the liberals about how shocking this is and how oh how outrageous this is. You know, compared to all everything else that I I mean look, last summer have we forgotten last summer a senior official in Melanie Jolie's office <laughs> went, went around to the Russian embassy for caviar and vodka on Russia I mean, you know, the, the thing of it is, this, this world stage stuff. You know, we, we, I don't really know how, there's decent people in the Liberal Party, and I don't mean to be uncharitable. But how much longer are we going to be able to put up with these scandalous eruptions of incompetence? It Let's matters listen. of foreign policy and and so on, it, it's 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 just uh, it's it really is like a script from Seinfeld.
1: Speaking of foreign policy, Terry, your thoughts on this incident and whether it helps fuel the Russian propaganda machine here? They invaded Ukraine and framed Ukraine as some sort of neo-Nazi regime that they were trying to take down. Now you've got Zelensky in Ottawa, and what does Canada do? Introduces a Nazi war veteran in the, in the house while he's there. <laughs> Have a listen to Conservative MP Andrew Scheer on this point. Let's listen.
0: There's a guest in the gallery who, whose presence fed into the Russian propaganda and narrative about the bogus justification for Putin's illegal invasion.
1: Yeah, okay, so and we've already seen the Russians jumping on this. Yeah. Terry, you got a couple of minutes here. Your thoughts?
6: Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing. Immediately, the Russians, uh, you know, the Russian embassy in in Ottawa and the Russian Russian foreign ministry were making A of the C. Told you so.
0: Yeah, told <laughs> I you. Mean,
6: it's just too, I think, you know, the rest of us, perfectly reasonable people, Liberal, you know, perfectly respectable uh, liberals are just, you know, it's just painful. It's just, you know, it it's so embarrassing. I think that's the thing. It's it's comically embarrassing. And at some point, I think quite soon, the liberals are going to pull the pin on this guy. There's going to be a serious house cleaning, and they'll go into the next election. They'll probably have their clocks cleaned, but Mm. uh, it's just. You know, it's the optics of the thing that I think demonstrate what's been there all along. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's been there all along. And um, I think this is just it's become impossible not to notice it now. (laughs) Okay. uh, Yeah, it's I'm sorry for laughing. I'm sorry for laughing.
1: Okay, we continue talking about this global embarrassment here for Canada. Why was this Nazi war veteran introduced in the House of Commons? The breaking news at this hour, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Rota, has just resigned. My guest, Dave, uh, standing by, Dave Puglasey from the Ottawa Citizen. Let's listen to the Speaker of the House of Commons here speaking just a short time ago.
6: It's with a heavy heart that I rise to inform members of my resignation as Speaker of the House of Commons. It has been my greatest honour as a parliamentarian to have been elected by you, my peers, to serve as the Speaker of the House of Commons.
1: All right. All right. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dave Fuglasey, reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. He's been following this story. Dave, thanks for coming on.
0: No, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you.
1: Okay. Any surprise here? This guy steps down?
0: Not really. Um, the the scandal is is growing uh, day by day. So I, I think they needed uh, a fall guy, and uh, and and Anthony Rota is is it.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's done. So we knew he once the liberals turned against him, you knew he was it was over.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh yeah. It's uh, I mean, this this issue is significant. If if you want to put it into context, this is the first time in Canadian parliamentary history that a Nazi SS SS war veteran has been given two standing ovations in our House of Commons. So, <laughs> you just kind of let that sink in.
1: Yeah. Should they have known this? I mean, there is a lot of questions yesterday about who did the screening on this guy, who did the background checks. I mean, they could have found out through a fairly simple Google search, right? I mean, you spoke to the university professor who was one of the first guys to blow the whistle on this, right?
0: Yeah, Mr. Hunka, the SS veteran. Um uh, there's a website which glorifies the uh, 14th SS Division Galicia. That's the uh, Ukrainian uh, division SS division that fought for the Third Reich. So, Mr. Hunka volunteered for this for this organization. Uh there's photos of him in his Nazi uniform online. Um you know, the University of Ottawa professor, uh a lot of the materials in Ukrainian, but you know, he translated it. So, but as well, when the Speaker of the House or when the House of Commons was told, hey, we've got a war veteran who fought for uh, for Ukrainian independence against the Russians during World War II, <laughs> there, there's your warning bell right there. Um, the, Russians yeah. were, the Russians were allied with Canada and the United States and Britain and the, the Allied powers fighting uh, Nazi Germany. So yeah. if you're fighting the Russians... You're fighting for the Nazis.
1: Well, yeah, someone should have connected the dots there, I think, uh, at that point. What kind of a propaganda coup is this for for Russia? Because when Russia invaded Ukraine, of course, they they portray Ukraine as some sort of neo-Nazi regime, and that's why they they went to war. Have a listen to Trudeau on this point, Dave, for your thoughts. So here's Trudeau talking about how Russia will seize this now as a propaganda opportunity. Let's listen.
6: It's going to be really
0: important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine, uh, as uh, we did last week with announcing uh, further measures to stand with Ukraine in uh, Russia's illegal war against it.
1: Okay, Russia, of course, now is saying, well, see, I told you, look, when, when Zelensky's in Ottawa, they're, they're honoring uh, Nazi war veterans. Dave, your thoughts?
0: Well, this is a propaganda coup for for Russia. It's it's a gift um, that they are using. But it's interesting. The prime minister says, well, we have to be on guard uh, for Russian disinformation. This is a self-inflicted wound. The Russians didn't say, hey, why don't you you invite this Nazi uh, war veteran uh, and give him uh, two standing ovations by all members of parliament? Uh, this was what the government did. This is what wow. Speaker Rota did. So, um, and the other issue is, this isn't Russian disinformation. The guy was an, a member of the SS. He fought for, for the Third Reich. So, you know, it's kind of uh, disingenuous to spin that as Russian disinformation.
1: Okay, so the Speaker has just stepped down. Anthony Rota has resigned. Dave, is that where it ends? I'm sure that's where the Liberals would like it to end. But will the opposition continue to capitalize this and start asking questions like, who approved this guy? Like, who vetted and did the background checks on this guy? Like, does that go to Trudeau's office?
0: Yeah, I think the opposition will keep hammering away um, while also neglecting that uh, to point out that they all stood up to give this guy a standing ovation. Um, I think on the international stage, things are going to get interesting because Poland has demanded an apology. From uh, from Canada, the reason being is that this SS unit was uh, has been alleged to have uh, conducted massacres during the Second World War of Polish women and children. Um, so you've got the Polish ambassador demanding an apology, and now the Polish education minister has said he will be going to Canada to the uh, extradition uh, the extradition of Mr. Hunka. Uh,
1: Okay, more to come on this one. Dave, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.